1: Today with Jeff Fines, author, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher with a straight-talking message from the Word.
0: There simply has to be a point of understanding that your life is not about you, it's about God and His glory, and God will lead you to do that which brings Him the most glory.
1: Today with Jeff Fines. Hello and welcome, my name is Bill. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Vines. We're picking up where we left off last time. Pastor Jeff is taking us through more principles found in Gideon's life to help us live as the instruments of God. Pastor Jeff says there's seven principles we should learn and we're gonna continue looking at number three, God leading us to do what brings Him the most glory. Let's get back into it with Pastor Jeff on today with Jeff
0: Vines, A student wants to ask me, Pastor Jeff, why is God so concerned with his own glory? I mean, it sounds like to me, God has a glory addiction. I mean, the Bible says he's a jealous God. If I'm jealous, I get in trouble. Why can he be jealous and I can't be jealous? Let me see if I can explain this very heavy theological term in one simple example. Let's say that I have a cure for COVID-19 and my son has the disease. But let's say someone else also claims they have the cure when in fact, what they're offering will bring death. Because I love my son so much, I will be jealous for him. I will want my glory to shine my cure for COVID-19 to outshine all counterfeit cures. And I will want to draw him away from the counterfeit to the thing that will truly save him and restore him. You see, if God is really God and he has our best interest in mind, then he would not sit idly by allowing counterfeits to take our allegiance away from the thing that will truly save to the thing that will destroy In the same way, God is jealous for you. We are constantly being drawn away to the things that will never deliver what they promise, never save, never give us hope or a future. And when these things are glorified above and beyond God, then we are led down a path of soul disintegration. Now, Again, if God loves us, why would he sit idly by without intervening in that situation? So what does God do? Listen, what does God do? He uses his people and their circumstances to glorify his name, to pull us away from what is false, what can never deliver into the God who delivers and restores. Can I give you a painful example? You know, I thought about, you know, how can we give this How can we illustrate this? How can we put skin onto this principle? Well, when Robin and I first went into Africa, it was a glorious time for us. You know, it was a new culture, a new way, an exciting adventure of what God will do. We were in our 20s, I can't tell you how happy we were when we discovered we weren't planning, but we discovered that Robin was pregnant. So I'm going to have my first kid. I'm in my mid twenties and I'm a little nervous about this, but at the same time, I'm excited. I remember putting my hand on her, uh, a tummy just to feel the heartbeat. I remember playing classical music. I'd put the speaker right up to the womb because I had heard that if you play classical music, your kid will be smarter. And coming from East Tennessee, you know, I needed a little bit of help. And so, I would do all those things. We talked about what we were gonna do when the child was born. And then Robin in her third trimester, uh, she was driving home, I think from the gym and there was an army vehicle on the other side of the road and they had been drinking too much and they crossed the center line and struck and hit my wife head on. And my wife was amazingly spared from death. I mean, it was amazing. When I got to the hospital, the seatbelt, where the seatbelt was, there was bruising all over her body, but yet she had been spared, but we had lost our first child. That's something we don't talk about a lot and something we don't talk about that much still. But as I look back at that moment, I remember how as a new husband and a potentially new father, I did not know how to deal with this. Part of me was angry at God. A part of me was angry that somehow God didn't step in and intervene, I was so poor at comforting my wife that a good friend of hers drove three hours from the Southern regions of Zimbabwe just to sit with my wife and talk with her and coach her through this. I was totally useless in this setting. And then I saw what happened. We were ministering to the Shona culture in Zimbabwe. And in the Shona culture, it is believed by the women of that culture that if you lose a child, it's because you have been cursed by God and there is some great sin in your life for which you are paying. So there were so many women who had lost children who were silent and who were shy and who were in the background, believing somehow that they could never be close to God because they had been cursed. Little did we know that when my wife Robin stood on that stage and said to them, I have lost my child, but I am not cursed. God has not abandoned me. God loves me. This child always belonged to God and I will see my child again. To me, inside I was broken, but on the outside I started to see how my wife's testimony in the midst of this did more than three or four years of ministry, of preaching and teaching because now they had seen God's work in the midst of their lives and in the life of the pastor's wife. I cannot tell you the catalytic effect that had on the Shona women of our church as they began to stand up proudly and know and believe that God had not abandoned him, that even in the worst, darkest night, the brightest light could shine. I'll never forget that. Someone had given Robin a book by Dr. Jack Hayford, and she read a book called, I Will Hold Him in Heaven. And somehow that gave Robin the stability to be able to experience the prevailing presence of a a God who loved her and who ministered to her in the deepest, darkest time of her life. But the Shona women gained that courage. They held their head up high. They realized that God had not abandoned them. And God was glorified by a woman who responded appropriately to a tragedy in her life. Now you might say, wait a minute, let's go back to theory or philosophy. Did God cause this event? Did God cause the drivers of an army vehicle to drink too much and cross the middle line? Well, that's preposterous. What the Bible does promise is that only Jesus takes a disadvantage, turns it into an advantage and uses it for his glory. And here we go again. It's about the glory of God and the wild life understands and embraces the relationship between a fallen world and God's ability to glorify himself through the events of his people that the truth about life, death, and eternity might be illuminated through us. But does that mean that God just abandons us and doesn't walk with us through our time of difficulty? Somebody might say, well, could God not have prevented this tragedy? Of course, if God is God, yes. You say, why didn't he? Oh, I only have two answers. Number one, the only way God could remove the possibility of every tragedy is to remove our freedom and to remove our freedom is to remove the potential for love. But second, whatever the reason is, it can't be because God did not love Robin and me. He's already answered that question as he gave up what was most precious to him so that he would not lose us. So there has to be something I cannot see. And I think for a moment that God wants to bring the women of Zimbabwe into his love and care. He sees these events colliding. He has trained Robin for this moment. God is glorified. Women come to him for eternity. Robin meets Jesus in a way that she had never known him before. Isn't it true that in abundance, God seldom gets the glory, but in deliverance, God is praised. But deliverance and oppression are inextricably tied together and our response during the oppression determines whether or not God will be glorified in our lives. Henry Ward Beecher said, "'Tears are the telescope by which men see far into heaven.'" You wanna see God? It comes during times of difficulty. It comes through the tears of unfortunate events. Now there's still something else and I don't want to leave this yet. God may have been glorified, but the reality is I still had no child. I am still going to go through life without my first child. How do we, are we sustained? And we are sustained because we know that he who gave life once will give it again. Whatever I lose will be replaced to an infinite greater degree. I will see my child one day. It is not the ultimate end. G.K. Chesterton said, God is like the sun. You can't look directly at it, but without it, you can't look at anything else. Without God, this world is nothing more than a collocation of unfortunate events with no redemptive quality. But with God, when all seems lost, all can be won. And yes, I know that the view from the hearse is a painful one. But here... God is the comforter and revealer and the one who brings the consolation of his presence to the one who carries the pain. That's why the psalmist said, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I won't fear any evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And Robin and I know that relationships that are made in God never die. Oppression brings God near. There can be no doubt. Our response in those moments glorifies God and compels people to come near to him. But only if I live for God and his glory and not my own. John Piper used to talk about the reality that it is not our job to be a microscope. A microscope looks through this tiny hole and attempts to bring something that is small into a larger frame. We're telescopes, We're not trying to make something small, bigger. We're trying to bring something that seems far away closer. And the number one way that God does that in us is to equip us in such a way that we develop this hoopamone, this staying power when the unfortunate events of our lives occur so that people will see in us the peace that passes all understanding. And so at the end of our greatest kingdom victories, we can say, the only way that could happen is God. Moreover, as we've said before, while God is doing this awesome work through you, he is doing something awesome in you. Do you remember what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said to them, you know, in order to keep me from becoming conceited and prideful, he said, I was given a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. He said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me that is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses in insults in hardships in persecutions and difficulties for when I am weak then I am strong is it really possible to delight in weaknesses, hardships, insults, percy. is that pot yes, it is, when you recognize that in that moment, you will realize how evident it is that you are not in control of the world around you. And in that moment, you will let go of trying to control everything. And you will invite God in and his strength will become your strength, his power, your power. Listen again, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. The weaker you are, listen, the more weakness you feel, the more open you become to the power of the living God. And there is something beautiful about our desert experiences, because when we think we can't go on in our weakness, we become strong and we become strong, God is glorified. And that's why Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Folks, please listen. When our moments of weakness come, we run to God and something beautiful happens. God comes near. Though I walk to the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. This is a more powerful testimony to the goodness and greatness of God than any sermon or book you could ever watch or read. You know, my wife has a friend. I'm not going to mention her name. but My wife talks about her all the time. She says, you know, Jeff, whatever could go wrong in a person's life has gone wrong in my friend's life. Some of the things that she has experienced are no fault of her own but some are just the result of unjust and unfair circumstances. She said, Jeff, you know, I look at her life and from my view, it seems to be so tough, almost unbearable. She has a couple of kids, an uninvolved father. She lives on less than $600 a month, $600 a month. She experiences chronic pain. She's had two bouts of cancer. She goes through chronic fatigue. Yet everyone who knows her describes her as amazing. Robin says, Jeff, she wakes up at 4, 4.30 every morning just so she can do her devotions before the challenge of the day begins. And every time you're around her, she gives glory to God constantly. Robin said, she's the least entitled person I know. She's the most grateful person I know, yet I don't know of another life that faces as much difficulty as this life. How can a person who experiences such heartache and sorrow be so grateful and willing to glorify God? The other day I was with Robin at Cracker Barrel. we discovered there's a Cracker Barrel now, not too far from where we live. And so we went out and we sat down to order food. So think about it for a moment. Number one, we can go out and eat. Number two, somebody else is cooking for us. But when it came time to order drinks, I wanted a diet root beer and they didn't have any. And it was the end of the world. No diet root beer. Why go on living? (laughs) My wife just looked at me and spoke the name of her friend. And suddenly, instant gratitude for what we had. When you meet a person like that, there is only one plausible explanation. Some people run to God when the odds are stacked against them. Others run away from God in disbelief. Do you know why? no faith. That might be hard to hear. Some of you right now in the midst of COVID-19 are panic stricken. You are so afraid that you are paralyzed. You can't go about day-to-day activities. You are so stricken with fear. You can't even pray. You can't think. You can't function. Do you know why? This is going to be hard to hear. Immaturity. But have no fear. God is still working on you. He just hasn't built your faith to the level of Gideon's faith yet where he can ask you to do something that is eternally extravagant, but he never gives up and he'll keep working until you learn to trust in the faithfulness of God. There simply has to be a point of understanding somewhere along the line that your life is not about you. It's about God and his glory and God will lead you to do. He will cause and allow events into your life. He will lead you to do that which brings him, not you, the most glory, but he will sustain you as you follow him in obedience. Sometimes I'm asked the question, why does God not do more miraculous things to glorify himself? I mean, if God wants to glorify himself, come on then, I can think of a lot of ways. Just zap this or do that, man, you'll be glorified. Let me read to you something that might help us understand why in the West, we are more apt to ask this question. Matthew 13, the Bible says that Jesus, coming to his hometown, began teaching the people in their synagogue, and they were amazed. And they asked this question Where did this man get his wisdom and these miraculous powers? Isn't this the carpenter's son? Isn't this is in his mother's name Mary? Aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his sisters with us? When then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor, except in his own town and in his own home. And he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. Now, the Bible says... He did not do miracles because of their lack of faith. Now, is it it that they did not believe he could do them? No, they believed he could do them. It says, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? The problem wasn't a lack of belief that Jesus could do them. The problem was Jesus knew they weren't gonna glorify God. They didn't believe the power to do these things actually came from God, but from someplace else. And God is never interested in sharing his glory with someone else. A primary motivation of God doing miraculous things in us is that God would be glorified. But when you look at us, look what we have done. We have locked God out in a closed system in a a strictly material universe. So no matter what God does, we always have a materialistic explanation for it. God's not gonna do things that glorify something other than his name. We start to glorify God again and give him the credit of his wonderful handiwork. I think God will be more willing to move miraculously in our lives. Let me say it one more time. God will lead you to do that which brings him the most glory. Let me close on August, 1988. There was a story that came out of the Reader's Digest about a 12-year-old boy living outside of Naples, Florida. This is one of my favorite stories. He was in the woods with his dog. And suddenly, as the story goes, he felt this searing heat around his ankle and he looked down only to see the head of an Eastern Diamondback. His dog was with him and his dog kept barking. Finally, the snake released his hold. The little boy said that he tried to make his way back home, but in reality, it was a couple of hours later when his father found him on the kitchen floor, unconscious. The nearest clinic was miles away. So the father held, picked up his boy, put him in the truck, and they started out on the journey and the car broke down. And they had to hitch a ride from a Haitian farm worker. They arrived at the clinic and the doctor said, look, I gotta tell you, the amount of venom was too great. And it's been in the boy too long. There's very little hope and I can't do anything here for him anyway. You're gonna have to take him into town to the larger hospital, which was even more miles away, a greater distance. They finally got there. When they arrived, the doctor told the father that there's no hope for survival. It's just, he's too small. There's too much venom. It's been in him too long. The story in Reader's Digest goes on to say that several days later, to the surprise of everyone, the little boy opened his eyes, but a greater surprise was yet to come. The doctor told him, said, "'Son, I want you to know "'that you are an extremely fortunate young man. "'No one, to my knowledge, "'has ever survived with so much venom for so long a time. And the little boy shook his head at the doctor and said, well, I knew all along I'd be okay. And then let me read to you word for word what he said. He said, Doc, I tried to make my way back home, but I started to fall when a person in white stood by me and picked me up. He carried me into the house and told me that I was going to be sick for some time, but that I was not to worry. He would take care of me and I would be completely well again. The doctor and the family were speechless. The father tried to dissuade the boy from saying those type of things since they were not religious people. But no matter how hard people tried to silence the boy, he just would not stop telling them that he knew exactly what had happened. He simply would not, and he still has not changed his story. There was a follow-up article about this young boy. The article finished by saying these words, There is one young boy growing up in America who believes he was carried in the arms of God. Can I ask you something? What amazing, unexplainable thing has God done in your life? Are you telling that story? Are you glorifying God? And no matter how they try to silence you, you know the real story. That God has taken the greatest challenge of your life and displayed His glory in you and through you to help those who are far away from God come near. One more time, God will always lead us to do that which brings Him the most glory.
1: Well, that's the end of that message. Thanks for joining us on Today with Jeff Bynes. Next time, we'll have more to learn from Gideon's life and actions with another message from Pastor Jeff.
0: God says, Gideon, here's your arsenal as you face 135,000 Midianites down in the valley. And He doesn't say anything about swords or bows and arrows, nothing about javelin or spears. He said, here's your arsenal. (laughs) Trumpets, pitchers or clay jars, torches and your voice. Now, what is happening here? Today with Jeff Vines.
1: For more from Pastor Jeff, head to vision.org.au